Acts chapter 4, verse, verse 1. Follow along with me as we read these words. Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it happened that on the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus, as always, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of your people tonight to hear from your word and to learn. I pray, Lord, that a greater depth, that a greater breadth, that a, a greater distance a greater fathoming of, of your love and of the hope that we as Christians have, the inheritance that is before us, every reason for joy, every reason for peace, every reason for confidence, even when circumstances around us seem like everything is falling apart, I pray, Lord, that tonight would be a small piece of a growing understanding of the hope that we have in you that your people would walk out of this room this evening a little bit more trusting and a little bit more loving and a little bit more faithful to you and to your name and that they would take that out into the world and proclaim the gospel with confidence and boldness. So Lord, speak to us now. Minister to your people for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of... Um, the things that jumped out at me as I, just, as I read this text and I just sat back and I, and I thought about it is, is who these guys are, Peter and John, and then who it is that they're speaking to in these first 12 verses that we just read. And it, it dawned on me that any time that we are sitting at a table or going for a walk, or any sort of situation, and we're talking with a friend or we're talking with a family member, we don't really consider what it is that we're going to say before we say it. We'd, I have, I've never written out something that I wanted to say to my wife except for our wedding vows, because that was a very special occasion. That was a very special time and place, and I didn't want to mess it up, and I certainly didn't want to leave to chance what it is that I might say in the moment. So I planned ahead, and I wrote it down, and I copied, and I pasted, and I edited, and that's a thing that we tend to do depending on our audience. If we're going to make a speech at a wedding, typically we write it down. If we're going to get up and present a sermon in front of a group of people, um, 
you should at least write something down and not just shoot off the cuff unless you absolutely have to in those sort of situations do and have happened. But we, we take into consideration what it is that we're going to say for special occasions. We don't just wing it. And here Peter and John, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a, of a, of a persecution, in the midst of being literally arrested and brought before a very intimidating group of people, uh, what we see is that they're, bef they're before the Supreme Court of Israel, and we have recorded what it is that they said to them. And so I, while Peter and John didn't have an opportunity to think about what they were going to say all that much, we have an example given to us of how to represent the Lord in an intimidating situation. We have before us an example of, of what to say specifically and even in, in pattern. What is, what is it that Peter lays out? What is it that is spoken here to a group of people that otherwise he would have had no audience with? He's here because he got arrested. John's here because they got arrested. So we should pay attention. As I was reading this, I was like, I, I should be paying attention very closely to what it is that Peter says because this is a special occasion. Not one that they planned on, but it's a special occasion all the same. They have an audience before the Supreme Court of Israel. You'll remember leading up to this, Peter and John healed a man who was born without the ability to walk. And this miracle brought about a bit of a drama and a bit of a conflict, and Peter began preaching a sermon, and then right smack dab in the middle of his sermon here, starting off in chapter 4, verse 1, we have an interruption that takes place. Now, as they were speaking to the people, so in the middle of this sermon, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees all interrupt this sermon. It's, it, it's quite an interruption. Peter and John had made quite a stink, and there was no... Um, there is no moderation in sending people to disrupt them, sending people to stop them. There were the priests who were there working in the temple. Priests, the, the, the job of a priest uh, was basically to make sacrifices on behalf of the people and for the people. They represented the divine to the people and they represented the people to the divine. They were sort of the, the person who stood in the gap, the intermediary between the common folk and Yahweh himself. They performed sacrifices. They did this daily maintenance of the temple itself. And they show up to see what it is that's going on. The captain of the, of, of the guard, that's actually, that's the it's basically the chief of police. The temple police were there to make sure that things were conducted in an orderly way and that things didn't ever get out of hand, that no riots broke out. And the captain is there to see what's going on. And the Sadducees themselves come to see what's going on. The Sadducees were a religious sect from uh, before Christ was born, during the Maccabean Revolt. If you know about that, um, then you know what's going on. We don't really have time to get into it tonight, but they were a religious sect. They had a lot of political power. They had a lot of religious power. Uh, they were very astute, very educated, and they lasted all the way. Their group lasted all the way up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They were the elite group. They believed only in the first five books of the Bible. They believed that only that had been authored by God himself. So they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in, in demons or, the, or, or angels. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. And actually, just for fun, because it is kind of funny, um, 
them not believing in resurrection, uh, Paul turns them and the Pharisees against each other in a moment of quick thinking when he was arrested. In Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 6, we read this account. Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that this was the high priest, for it is written that you shall not speak evil of your ruler or of your people. So Paul is arrested here. He's in hot water. But knowing that one of the groups that were there were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the, to the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there is a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. And there occurred a great outcry, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose that maybe a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, because the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he ordered the troops go down and take him away. And so they took him by force and they brought him back to the barracks. So Paul's in hot water and these people believe what they believed so staunchly and Paul knew it that he sort of took the, high, took the, the spotlight off of him and said something about resurrection and a fight started between the two people who were holding him and Paul got away, which is pretty rad. So the Sadducees do not believe in miracles, but they're an elite group. And they make up part of what is the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Supreme Court of, of Israel. And they show up and they're, they're agitated. They're greatly agitated, verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This word agitated in the Greek means very very upset. They were greatly distressed. It's, this word is only used one other time in the Bible. It's later in the book of Acts. Paul becomes agitated because he's being pursued and followed by a woman who has, who has a demonic possession, and he gets tired of her, of, of her uh, mocking him and chasing him around, and, and so he turns around and he rebukes the evil spirit, and he comes out of that young girl. These guys are real mad. And they're real mad because Peter and John are teaching in the temple, and it's not just that they're teaching. That in and of itself is bad enough because nobody could just walk into the temple and, and start teaching to an audience. You had to be educated. You had to be accredited. You needed some sort of resume to give you the right to stand up and to teach, and John and Peter did not have that. They had no credentials whatsoever. And the same is true for Jesus. You remember in John 7 that it was pointed out, this guy hasn't had any formal education. How did he get such learning and such knowledge? But Jesus was tolerated because the people loved him and figured that he was a prophet. And the authorities were so scared of being outnumbered by the masses that they left Jesus alone. But still they questioned his authority. Matthew 21 has a good example of that. So not only were Peter and John teaching in the temple, which was a no-no, because they were a bunch of nobodies, but they were teaching specifically resurrection, and the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. And they were teaching this resurrection in the name of Jesus Christ, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This is an outright defiance. Not only, not only are these guys not supposed to be here, but they're teaching about a resurrection from the dead that the Sadducees don't believe in, and they're teaching about a resurrection from the dead and a Jesus that the Sanhedrin themselves made sure was killed. 
So this is hot water all around. This is an open defiance of the, of the mandate of the Sanhedrin. This man must be killed. We're going to put Jesus on a cross, and then just a month or so later, a couple months later, Peter and John show up proclaiming resurrection in the dead in the name of this same Jesus, defying what they did, saying you weren't successful. Not only is Jesus Christ alive, but people are becoming alive, and people are being healed in the power of his name. So the priests, the captain, the Sadducees, they show up agitated at these men. In verse 3, and they laid hands on them, and they put them in the jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So we don't have much of what happened from afternoon to evening. Chapter 3, verse 1, where this whole event started off, tells us that it was at the ninth hour of prayer, which would have been hour 3 p.m. And now, as they're getting arrested, hands are being laid on them, and they're being taken into jails because it was late in the day. They weren't going to have a trial that day. So for, that's, a, that's at least 6 p.m. So there's three hours of this sermon and of this preaching that has taken place since this man was healed. And I don't, I am just curious, what were those, what were those three hours like? probably quite awesome to get the attention of all of these individuals who are trying to put an end to this. So they lay hands on Peter and John, and they bring them into the jail in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed. It was too late. The message of the gospel took hold, and people were saved. And the number of men who came, that came to be about 5,000. Now, this is, this is just for study notes, because you could read something like this and and probably not think much of it. You could probably pass right over it. But it was interesting to me. It says the number of men came to be about 5,000. That word for men is very specific in the Greek. It's the word aner. It doesn't, it doesn't mean mankind. It means specifically men apart from females. It was, it was males. It was just men. So just the men that came to believe was 5,000. We don't know how many women. This is the same thing that happened in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 14. It's the word aner, 5,000 men plus women and children. So we don't really know how many people came to be saved this day, but it was a lot. A lot of people, at least 5,000 men plus women and maybe some youngsters who were in the crowd. And now it happened that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. It's just another group, another gathering. These guys are in big trouble. And as I want us to already start considering, we're going we're gonna to get into this more and more until we get to verse 12, the pressure and the fear and the anxiety. Can you imagine? I mean, these are the rulers of the rulers. These are the elite of the elite and we know that they're not trustworthy men. We know that they have no integrity. We know that when push comes to shove, they have no problem skirting their honesty to get what they want. They just did it with Jesus. They just forced him to be killed even though it was illegal and even though Pilate, remember Pilate, they went up against Pilate, the Roman governor, to have Jesus executed when Pilate was saying, I find no guilt in this man, but they pushed and they pushed and they pushed until they succeeded in him being killed and now Peter and John are at the mercy of the same people. Imagine how suffocatingly terrifying that could be. The rulers and the elders 
and the scribes. The rulers would have been the chief priests, and the elders were the heads of each of the tribes of the people. The scribes were legal experts and experts in doctrine. This is, again, the supreme court of Israel. And as terrifying as this is, as uncertain and as scary, these men trust the Lord, as we're going to see, and again, they all of a sudden have an audience with a group of people that they never otherwise would have been able to talk to. And all of them are there. And Peter is given an opportunity to preach. We count it joy when we come into suffering. We don't know the good that the Lord could bring out of our particular situation, even and maybe even especially when our situation is not ideal and looks hopeless. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, which is written from prison. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances, that is the circumstances of being incarcerated, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become, become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. If, when you come into some sort of persecution, some sort of trial, some sort of travail, do you think like this? Do you think the Lord is doing something, the Lord is producing something wider and farther and deeper in me? through this experience, and that the gospel itself might actually be advancing because of this experience, a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we, th we think about situations like this, like, you know, what would I do if I go to jail? And fair enough, it's a terrifying reality. As a pastor in a city that seems to be growing more and more and more volatile and hostile to the gospel, I wonder if there is a day that even here in North America, pastors are going to be pulled out of the pulpit and put into prisons because we preach things like, Man and woman, that's marriage, that's sex. I mean, that alone is going to be hate speech any day now, if it's not already. This, this Jesus, the gospel, the, 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 the instructions of Yahweh to his people is offensive. The world hates it. And I think about that, and it terrifies me, and I have to stop and think, but God is in control. And I want us to remember that from this point forward, God is in control. I want us to think tonight, where am I not trusting the Lord? Where am I so fearful that I would, that I would skip out, that I would bail, that I would throw Jesus away for the sake of self-preservation? Where is that line? Where is that limit? And maybe we don't know. But we should think about it. We should consider it because these guys are preaching the gospel and all of a sudden they are in handcuffs and then they are in jail and now they're standing before 71 men who are demanding of them answers. In verse 6, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Now again, just another study note, if you read the Gospels closely and then come to the book of Acts, you might read verse 6 and go, wait, wait what's going on here? Annas, the high priest, that doesn't make any sense because in John chapter 11 and in John chapter 18, it says very explicitly that Caiaphas is the high priest. It says here in Acts 4, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas is there. What's going on? And this is very, very simple, but if you read that, you might trip you up, so I want to help clarify that. 
the way that the high priest was treated, Annas was the high priest for about 10 years, and the way that they were treated is very similar to how we treat presidents today. Once a president is in office in the United States, and then his, his time in office is over, we still refer to them as president. President Bush, President Obama, so on and so forth. And so Annas is being acknowledged here as the high priest, and very likely he was still unofficially active and behind the scenes pulling strings and making things happen. But nonetheless, here is Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and we don't know exactly who John and Alexander are. Scholars are, believe pretty with a lot of, um, there's a lot of consensus that John and Alexander are probably sons of Caiaphas, but it really doesn't matter. But since it's there, I got to bring it up. So these men come, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas and his boys, In verse 7, they had placed them in their midst. They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? This is such a such a terrifying reality. So the full council of the Sanhedrin was 71 men. It was 70 voting, it was 70 voting members, and then the the 71st member was the high priest himself, and he was there to cast a vote in case there was a tie. So if there was a 35-35 split, the high priest would be there to throw in his vote. So he was the deciding vote in those sorts of situations. 71 individuals, and whenever they brought someone before them and placed them in their midst, their council area was a semicircle with the 71 seats, and the 71 seats were elevated above so that the men could look down on the accused. So imagine, if you will, Peter and John in their sandals and their dirty clothes standing in a semicircle right in the middle, halfway surrounded by 71 men looking down on them and demanding them answers. What would you do? What would you say? I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would say. I I hope that I would say and do what Peter says and does. But we we have to give the Sanhedrin a little bit of credit here because what they are doing is is biblically prescribed. There there there's been not even a rumor, but a verified account of a miracle. It's actually taken place. It's no secret. They can't deny it. And so they're asking for answers. What is your point? Where, what, where are you going with this? What's the direction? What's the name? What's the power? What is your influence? Where are you trying to lead the people? And this is precisely what's prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's what I have been teaching on for the last several weeks as to why we as Christians don't just blindly follow the miracles. We have to see what is the product of the miracle. Does someone perform a miracle and then say, great as, great as I? We, that's not a miracle that we, that we follow, but it's something that can happen. If someone performs a miracle, even something like raising somebody from the dead and then says, great is Buddha, you don't don't go for that. The demon can counterfeit powers and wonders. And in Deuteronomy 13, we're told explicitly, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke, and says to you, let us go and pursue other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. You shall not listen to that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. And then in verse 5 it says, that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. And so here we have miracle worker, prop, we have people who are speaking in the name of Jesus, and so they're surrounded 
in a half circle by the Sanhedrin and the demand is being made in what name and what power are you doing this? Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, I pray to God that if the time comes, this is what we would experience. And this is what Jesus promised. In Matthew chapter 10, he says this, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about what you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is a special power for a specific purpose at a specific time. Peter was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Every believing Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit has come to live inside of your soul. You have been regenerated. You have been given a new heart. The victorious life of Christ resides in you. That's what it is to be born again. But then being filled with the Holy Spirit at any given place or time is a special anointing for a special place at a special time for a specific purpose. And that's what Peter experiences here. As we're going to note, it says in verse 13 that these men observed that Peter and John had confidence, but that they were unlearned men. They were baffled by what was coming out of Peter's mouth because Peter wasn't speaking of his own accord. He was speaking with a supernatural filling up of God the Spirit, and boy, (laughs) how much we need that, how much we need to trust. If we ever get into hot water, pray, pray that God the Spirit would give you the words to say, even if you're not being if you're not on trial, you know, even if you just come up against somebody who wants to have a conversation about Jesus, Lord, fill my mouth with what it is that you would have them say. Peter flips this whole thing around on them. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says first in verse 9, he says, if we were being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, I, I love that. The first thing Peter does is he says, listen, This is a lot of drama about a whole lot of nothing. If we're on trial today for having mercy on a guy who needed it, then y'all need to repent. Y'all got something wrong with you. If we're really here on trial because a man who was unable to walk can now walk and is praising God, the God that you claim to worship, then maybe we should rethink this from the get-go. But if you really want to know, verse 10, let it be known to all of you. And I love this because... Notice it through this whole, this whole ordeal. Peter, was, Peter and John were preaching. They were interrupted. Hands were laid on them. They were put in jail. And they were kept there overnight. And there's no complaining. There's no moaning. There's no objecting. Peter here is not drawing a sword to defend himself like he did in John chapter 18. He submits to the authorities that are over him. He submits to the authorities that took in his, his Savior, our Savior, Jesus. But he's not being a coward. He's submitting to their authority. He's submitting to their power. But then as soon as he has an opportunity, he speaks boldly. He says, let it be known. He didn't apologize. If Peter had at this moment, if Peter and John had said, oh, the power of the name, you know, uh, the guy that got healed, who's, you know, I, you're my bad. You're right. You're right. 
we were in the temple and we shouldn't have been. We were preaching resurrection and everybody knows that doesn't exist. And Jesus, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't know him the night by the fire when the rooster crowed and I don't know him now. I'm drunk. I apologize. They would have been let go. They would have been unbothered. They would have been, they wouldn't have been dealt with this. They wouldn't be in jail. Peter could have apologized and it all would have been over. He, his troubles and his worries would have been behind him. The path of least resistance would have been his if in this moment he had just said, men, let it be made known, I was drinking and I'm sorry. If he had just said that, things would have been so much easier for him and things would be so much easier for us if we would just shut up about Jesus. Things would be so much easier for us if we just said, my bad, I like Jesus, you like some other deity, that's fine. What's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, and we would never come into conflict with anybody. But that's not what Peter does, and it's not what we should be doing. And I know that it's a temptation. But Peter goes on and he boldly claims the name of Jesus Christ, and he knows that it's offensive. He says, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, just turns up the heat. Not only is it the name of Jesus, but it's the name of Jesus, the Jesus who you crucified. Again, he, he tells them what they did. He did it in chapter 2, he did it in chapter 3, and he's doing it now. The Jesus whom you crucified. He is submitted to their authority, but he is not being a coward. He is trusting his Lord in an uncomfortable situation. And I'm afraid that the church is not doing this. The church does not do what Peter does because there's this refusal to be offensive to people. And you know, the thing is, friends, there's a balance here because we don't need to be braggarts. We don't need to be jerks. Remember we considered last week, Peter is telling this group of men, you killed Jesus. You did it. You actually asked for Barabbas, a known murderer and insurrectionist, to be released to you, and in trade, Jesus goes to the cross. How dark are your hearts? But he calls them brothers. He calls them fellow men of Israel. He's not being a jerk, but he's being clear, and he's being true. He's being honest. He's not stuttering. He's not skipping anything. He's not trying to be unoffensive. The fact of the matter is, the most loving thing to do is simultaneously the most offensive thing to do. Preaching Christ and him crucified is offensive. And you know what? It's not our problem. We're told to do it. And in faith and in trust, we need to lovingly preach Christ. That there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. That's it, the way, the truth, and the life. It's him, and the world hates it. And we might come under a lot of heat preaching that. And when it happens, I, I often think, well, you know what, if, if somebody is offended by the name of Jesus, then maybe what I should do is dilute the name of Jesus so that I can get them to come to church. But then at church, they're just gonna hear the name of Jesus. If they reject you, if, if, even if they're just like politely no, I mean, there's nothing, but you've got to, we have to preach Jesus. We have to preach him. I was in the neighborhood earlier this week and I was working on this sermon, my, I, or maybe a different one, doesn't matter, and I was minding my own business and uh, we were at Sweet Hereafter up here, this little vegan spot that Nick Mariakis makes us go to. And I was, so I was there alone and on the other side of the restaurant there was a, a, a woman about my age and then a woman 
that looked like she was maybe in her 80s, and I wasn't really paying any attention to them, but I saw that they were there, and at one point, the woman who was, looked like she was in her 80s got up, and she was on the telephone, and she was speaking very loudly, and she actually came, and she sat right next to me, and she was canceling her credit cards, and I could hear the person on the other line say, you know, why are you canceling your credit cards? Is it is it, is it uh, your, our service? Is it something that happened? And she said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. I'm canceling my credit cards today because I've just come from the doctor's office and they've given me three months to live. And I just want to cancel these credit cards so that my kids have one less thing to deal with when I'm gone. And as a pastor, my ears perked up. Three months to live. And if you live in Portland, Oregon, there's a 90% chance you're not a Christian. So here's a woman who might be facing eternal damnation and she's sitting right next to a pastor. And you know what my gut did? Shut up, dude. You're in this, you're in Sweet Hereafter in Portland. There's literally a sticker right outside on the brick wall of a Bible that has fake news printed across the front of it. And you're going to tell this woman about Jesus Christ in this place right here, right now, when she didn't ask you to? Yeah, 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 I am. I had to tell myself to shut it. And she finished her phone call and she went back over to her table and I followed her. And I sat down with what I found out was her and her daughter, and I said, ma'am, I and the entire bar couldn't help hearing what you said. Uh, I'm a Christian pastor at this cool castle building right over here. Oh, yeah, I know the place. And I, and I shared with her the gospel, and, and she wasn't really all that interested. But she gave me her phone number, and I texted her, and we prayed right there and then in the table. And if I had listened to my gut, that wouldn't have happened. Now, I'm going to ask for y'all, if you're going to join this, this fast for this week, if you're going to come to prayer, and even if you don't, pray for Roseanne. I don't exactly know how old she is, 70s to 80s, but she's got cancer, and the doctors have given her three months, six months at the most to live, and she needs to know Jesus. Pray that she texts me. Pray that she comes into this church. We have to tell people about Jesus, even if they don't really want to hear it. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that we shut up. We don't need to be braggarts. We don't need to be bullies. But we do need to preach the gospel of Christ because there is no other name. Jesus Christ, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead. There it is again. Peter puts the blame on them. He says, you crucified Jesus, but it's not his focal point. The focal point is God raised, whom God raised. Jesus is not dead, he is alive, he is raised from the dead, and that eternal life can be yours by grace through faith. He said the same thing in chapter two, verse 23. He said the same thing in chapter three, verse 15. Friends, we will suffer because of the name of Jesus to some extent. We may never stand before a court like this. I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, we have to think about this kind of situation rightly and appropriately because what the devil's gonna try to do whenever this sort of thing happens or even something like you get, a, you get a death sentence, three months to live, our natural inclination and what the devil is gonna twist on is see, I told you that God was a liar. I told you he was untrustworthy. I told you that you couldn't put your faith in him. Look what happened to you. Look what happened to your health. Look what happened to your kids. That is the voice of the devil. That is the voice of living hell trying to suck you in. Peter himself in his epistle would go on to say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, listen to this carefully, if you are insulted here and now for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus himself said in Matthew 13, 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. And we hate to be hated. We hate to be hated. But we learned the lesson uh, from the Apostle Paul when he was Saul on the way to Damascus who was persecuting and killing Christians. He gets knocked off his horse. The resurrected Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was killing Christians because he hated Jesus. And to this very day, people persecute Christians because they hate Jesus. If it wasn't because of the name of Jesus on your lips, we'd be getting along just fine. So where's our allegiance? Christ or self-preservation? Love of the world or love of God? I can't answer that for you. All I can do is bring out what's in the text. Peter, in this moment of trial and travail, and John along with him, trusted in Jesus and preached him boldly. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if tested by fire, you may be, if, even if now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes when it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sorry. The point there is that talk is cheap. One of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading this, this is really silly, but I remember it clearly. I used to follow MMA fighting really closely and I would go, when I worked for the glass company, there was a group of guys that we would, we would go, we'd get nachos and we'd get wings and we'd get beer and we'd go to the house and we'd do pay-per-view and we'd watch the game. And it was so funny how these guys that were, that were overweight and unhealthy, drinking their ninth IPA, would be yelling at the TV, get them in an arm bar, get them in a choke. Oh, if I was there, if I was there, if I was there. It's like, bro, you couldn't run a quarter mile if you were being chased. What are you gonna do? Talk is cheap. Whenever you're faced with an actual opportunity for physical violence, what are you going to do? You're bloated, you're eating chicken wings, and you're on your ninth IPA. Be quiet. But we talk big. Guys like me talk big. Hey, I'm, a front, I'm from in front of my friends. No one here is going to, well, I'm not going to say that, never mind. But here, I'm pretty safe. At church, you're pretty safe. But Peter's talking about a faith that is tested. A faith that is tested. COVID was a test. Coming to church during COVID was difficult. It was scary. And for some people, the right thing to do was to keep their distance. There were some people that's absolutely fair enough for your health. Totally understand. But a lot of people use it as an excuse to go, well, you know what? I, I, could, I could just stay home. And so I'm going to. So I'm going to. It wasn't for their health, it wasn't for caution, it wasn't for safety, it was because there was an easy out. Church became inconvenient and so it really just isn't all that worth it to me, I'm gonna bow out. And simultaneously, people who came face to face with their mortality flooded the church. I need something besides myself and they came in and they met Jesus. Has your, ta has your faith been tested? This was the mo one of the most valuable things that came from my father's death. 
I watched cancer eat him one inch at a time, and I watched his faith in the, in the good Lord Jesus grow as his outer man wasted away and his inner man became new day by day, and I watched my faith grow because I experienced something that I absolutely hated, and I trusted Jesus in the midst of it, even sometimes despite myself. Watching him die, knowing he was going to be with the Lord, I came, I was confronted with my own doubt, my own fear, my own mortality. I had my, my own insecurity. I mean, I've never lived a life without my dad. What's that gonna be like? I've never lived that life. I don't know how to be that guy. And the Lord led my family and I into it. And now I know, my goodness, like I, I love the Lord. I trust him, I believe in him. Well, how do you know? Well, I watched my dad die. And I did it worshiping, and I did it with joy. Along with the fear and along with the insecurity, the insecurity and the fear died out, worship took over because I trust Jesus. My faith's been tested. Praise God, I have a pretty good idea that I'm actually saved and going to heaven and that this is gonna be done like that. Has your faith been tested? Do not think that the fiery trial is something strange. It could be God's gracious and loving arm, his gracious extension of his sovereign wisdom testing you so that you know that you stand secure and are certain that your name is written in the book of the, the Lamb's book of life, which is what Jesus told his disciples to rejoice in. Don't rejoice that you have power over the, demon, the demons and they're in submission to you in my name. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And sometimes our faith is tested. And it's a gift. It's a gift. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, believed in this so much, this praise and this honor and this glory that is, is ours. It's for us. When Jesus is revealed, when he comes again and ushers us into his kingdom, this praise and glory and honor is ours. And Paul believed in it so much that he actually writes in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Notice that when you read the, all of the epistles, all of the writings of James and Peter and Paul, they never say, A, they never say, I pray that your persecution will abate or that your pain will be assuaged or that your suffering will be ameliorated. They, he never says anything like that. What he prays for in the midst of trial and persecution is for boldness and for knowledge and for peace and for power. He never, Paul and James and Peter and all the, they never say, woe is me, I've been shipwrecked. Woe is me, I'm in jail. Woe is me, I'm being persecuted. Woe is you. Everybody hates you because of the name of Jesus. Woe is you. You never read that. The only time that Paul says, woe is me, is when he says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. Peter could have apologized. John could have said, my bad, and they would have been released. But what a mutiny. What a failure. What a betrayal. And what a missed opportunity. Paul expresses this. Woe is me, not if I'm beaten or stricken or persecuted, but woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. They were in pain because they, they dedicated, they were disciplined, they preached the word of God, but the pain of regret is so much worse. The pain of regret is what Peter experienced when he denied Jesus three times, explicitly and with an oath, and he wept bitterly. Here he's in trouble, but he's not weeping. He's preaching. It's beautiful. Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you and in good health. 
Verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. The stone that is rejected, that's Psalms 118, verse 22. Jesus speaks on this in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 42. Jesus, who's speaking to the Pharisees, and to the chief priests, some of the same men that Peter and John are before right now. And Jesus says this, did you never read the scriptures? Which is sarcasm because these are biblical scholars. So Jesus is being funny. Did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever, but whomever it falls upon, it will scatter him like dust. You know what that's like? You know what that's like. You've, you've fallen on Jesus and been broken and then brought back to life again. That's the beauty of falling on the stone. But if the stone, if he crushes you, you're eternally lost. You scatter like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him as a prophet. And Peter is now saying the same thing to them. They couldn't understand that the Messiah could be rejected, that the chief cornerstone could be rejected. That is that he would die. But not only did the chief cornerstone die, he died at their hands. He died at their verdict. He died because of their sin of rejecting him, of pushing him away because of their disbelief. But the rejection of the cornerstone was prophesied in Scripture. And they could have known, but they didn't. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about this cornerstone, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household. Think of that. If you're here tonight and you're broken and downtrodden and beaten and you feel like you're standing before 71 people who want you dead, you are God's household. You are God's family. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary. The church is God's family. We are his house. And a cornerstone, the way it works is all of the stones that are built up rest on a cornerstone. And you pull the stone out and everything crumbles. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our brother in faith. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our savior. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Jesus was given. Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. Jesus stood before the crowd that wanted him murdered. Jesus stood before the crowd that hated him, and he endured for us, for you. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him. So magnificently does he love you that not only did he stand before all of the men that wanted him dead, all of the people who cried out for his blood, he knew it was going to happen, and he came and he did it anyways so that you could be his family, so that you would never ultimately have to face death, so that you would ultimately never have to face the court. Jesus faced it for you. He faced it for me. He faced it for us. He was given. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son. He came, he was born, he lived a sinless life, and he died. And then he rose again and is offering a mortal life. And by that authority, he commands us to repent. Repentance is a commandment. We are told, we are commanded. We must repent. We must be saved. There's no other name that is given by which we must be saved. This command is not to be disobeyed. To, 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 to disobey the command of repentance and belief is to enter into separation from God for all of eternity, which is described in the Bible as hell. Conscious, eternal, physical torment. Separation from God relationally and all of the trillions of awful things that that includes. But must be saved. Salvation is possible. While there's breath in your lungs, salvation is possible. And if you're here tonight and you're on the fence, believe in Jesus. Paul writes that today is the day of salvation. You could die at any moment. But God in his grace has come down. He has been given. He was a willing and informed volunteer and he went to the cross in control and in power and in love. And he died knowing it was going to happen. He faced a situation worse than this for you because he loves you. Do you believe that? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you like crazy. He loves you like mad. He loves you so much it cost him this. It cost him his life. He went to the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to experience a forsaking. He's good. Amen? Amen.